Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our college pastor, Jonathan DeJesus. Y'all doing all right? <laughs> all right, so uh, I got to warn y'all, this is going to be like drinking a fi- out of a fire hose this morning, all right? So tell your neighbor, hold on. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm going to bring this excitement. I need you to match it. Tell your neighbor, hold on. There we go. There we go. Here we go. Let me, press, let, me, let me start us off with a question, and I don't want you to answer it. I, I want you to answer it more so internally than anything else, and it's how many of you with an honest heart can truly say you are unashamed of Jesus? You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we have all been there. We have all had those moments and times and opportunities to share our faith, and when they arise, something holds us back. Maybe it's our doubts, maybe it's our past, maybe it's our insecurities of ourselves, or maybe we use the excuse, I just don't know much about the Bible. If we're real with ourselves, and I hope we can be, then the reality is that we are not always unashamed of Jesus 24-7. We have a hard time with that. But I want to take us to this place, this room, where this idea first took root, the idea of being unashamed. So if you would, travel with me in your minds, and I want to set the picture. The sun has set, and it's late in the evening, and as we draw near to our main location, we can hear groups of people talking and laughing. We can see a couple of drunk people walking about. There are wild parties in the distance and wild dogs skirmishing through the garbage looking for food. Men are asleep on the sidewalk. Some are begging for help. Others are asking for money. As we walk a little further, we approach the destination. We walk through the door. Now it's quiet, not too quiet, but we can hear footsteps. We can hear someone pacing back and forth, back and forth. And fourth, we can hear small conversations happening and taking place from the room where it all happened. As we enter the room where it happened, we can see a flicker of light dancing on the wall, a shadow that has been casted by a lit candle on a desk where a man sits. Now, there are empty plates all around, some empty cups, maybe with a little bit of water left over, maybe, just maybe, a pot of coffee brewing in the corner. There's a man who sits at the table, and he seems to be in deep, deep thought. And he is writing away, and his desk is covered with parchment as though he's been writing for a long time. This room is full of people surrounding him. It's, everyone there is kind of a bit on edge as they kind of pay close attention to what this writer is doing, what he is writing. We are not the first to step foot into this room. You see, this room is a very unique room. And we are on a long list of people who have come through this room. One of those uh, people who have frequently visited this room, he once said, every believer should know this room, should know the contents of this room word for word. We should know it by heart. We should occupy our time with this room every single day. This room can never be visited enough. 
The more we visit it, the more we deal with its contents of the room, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The room has been visited by both the saints and the ain'ts, to steal a line from the great Jackie Hill Perry. The room where it happened has been the rock that was used to bring about reformation to a pool of stagnant waters. The room where it happened has mighty implications for how we, you and I, are to live in light of the culture today. This room has been visited by the likes of Origen, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Philip McCawthon, and I know those are just names to you, but these are great heroes of the faith. This room is, is the room where St. Augustine acquired his idea of original sin. This room is, is the room that the great Martin Luther gained his understanding of, 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 of justification by faith alone. This room is where John Wesley, who got his great distinctive teachings on sanctification, and this room is the room where Karl Barth learned of the importance of the righteousness of God. In short, this room is a place we should all visit quite often. As a matter of fact, it's a room that you are all invited to today. If you haven't figured it out by the big words behind me, we're talking about the book of Romans. We're talking about this place where, where Paul wrote this letter, this epistle, as some call it, that, that, that Paul in our, in our story is the man walking back and forth. He is, he is kind of saying these words. He is kind of putting to, 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 to speech all of his thoughts. And, and there's a man who is writing, and that man is tertius, his, his penmanship writer, the, the guy that would write his letter. He's the guy at the desk. And can you imagine writing as Paul is talking and, and I can picture that I probably would run out of stuff to, to write with. You see, this, this letter is vitally important because just like the room that is filled with both male and female, Jew and Gentile, this letter is, is, is written to a church in Rome that was experiencing both division and confusion from both people on the inside and people on the outside. It's not much different than our, our context today. Churches are quarreling with one another. People inside fighting over small little details that don't matter. Pews or receipts. The color of the rugs versus the color on the walls. I mean, the list can go on. Communion. How do we take it? When do we take it? Do we take it? Baptism. Does it happen? Do we dunk them? Do we sprinkle them? I mean, the list goes on. And our, our context today is not much different than the church in Rome. And so Paul is writing this beautiful letter for us to understand how we can be unified. How you and I can understand the gospel and its context and how it joins us all in together in one family. And so as, it, as important as it is, I want us to kind of give, I want to give you an outline of, of what Romans looks like. Romans is, is broken up into kind of four movements. It's it's kind of this four movements, but one long flowing exploration of the, of the gospel. First, Paul says it's unveiling of God's righteousness. Then he says it's, it's helping us to understand that we're going into this new covenant and becoming new creation. And then it says how, how God is faithful and how Israel has become unbelievers. But, but, but then it goes and says that the faithfulness of God is, 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 is mixed intertwined with the fellowship of the believer. 
Paul's letter to the Romans is one of his longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to the group known as the Pharisees. He was passionate and, and, and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. He saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with Jesus. And then Jesus commissioned him and said, hey, I'm going to send you as my representative to not only the Jews, but mostly to the Gentiles. And after that encounter with the risen Jesus, he started to, to, to kind of go on trips, missionary trips, and he started going out throughout all of Rome and, and the ancient empire. And he started telling people about the risen Jesus, and, and he started forming these small communities that we call churches. Paul would occasionally write letters to those churches. And he would help them to understand some of the hardships that they would encounter. He would answer some of the questions that they may have asked him. This letter, Romans, is, is one of those letters. You see, Paul wrote this letter late in his career, kind of around his third missionary trip. And we know that in the book of Acts, this church had already been established, and it was filled with both Jews and Gentiles, but something happened in the empire Rome uh, got a new emperor, Claudius, and Claudius did not like the Jews, and so he expels the Jews, and he says, hey, you have to leave out of Rome. And so the Jews, who were already a part of this church, now have, have been taken away, and after five years, Claudius is gone, they're coming back, and what they're encountering is that the church doesn't look the same it used to. People aren't practicing the same things. They're not, they're not doing, uh, they're, not, they're not having kosher meals. Some of them aren't circumcised. And so, so there's this tension between the Jews who are returning and the Gentiles who are already there believing in the same Jesus. Doesn't sound much different than our context today, does it? And so here in the room where it happened, Paul echoes both Isaiah and the exodus of Israel. Remember, Paul is talking to a group of Jews about their history and to a group of Gentiles about how this history is also their story because of their faith in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Rome, Romans is Paul's magna opus, meaning it is his Mount Everest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, there were some little papers on your seats. I want you to know that's my gift to you. Um, sorry, I know it's just paper, but I promise it has more value in what is on the paper than the paper itself. You see, this is a word bank. And as you walk through Romans, I, I want you to use this little paper. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but it'll help you to understand what Paul is saying. Some of these big churchy words, some of these big theological implications that, that will help you to better understand where we are going. Because guess what? We're going to be in this letter for the next 10 weeks. And my hope is that you would join us as we walk through this letter. This letter has, has helped countless of, of churches, has helped believers to, to stand firm in, in their faith. But it also has brought about transformation in their hearts. Now, as we get ready to dive in, Paul wants us to know that humanity's greatest threat is that there is a thing called sin, and that all of us have inherited sin through Adam's disobedience, 
that our sin has transgressed the holy and perfect God and his law. And because of that disobedience, you and I have inherited and acquired death in the process. But there's good news. You see, the good news is that humanity's greatest threat is combated with humanity's greatest need, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a grace that has been given to you and me as a believer who place our faith in Jesus so that we will no longer be bound to death but rather have eternal life with God. And that is good news. And so our text for today is kind of the end of chapter 5 and into 6. But before we get there, I need to give you an overview of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And so chapter 1, Paul goes in and he says, hey, he introduces this letter and gives us the key to understanding where we are going. Paul echoes Genesis 3 and he says, hey, all of humanity is in bondage and guilt. Chapter 2, he talks about how Israel is just as guilty, if not more, because God gave them the law. Chapter 3, God's plan for redemption came through the justification of, 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 of you and I by our faith in Christ. And he wants us to know that God is righteous and he makes us whole through his plan. In chapter 4, he, he, he asks this question, who is a part of the covenantal family? And then he tells us how Abraham, who was an outsider, uh, 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 ultimately a Gentile, became the father of faith. And then in chapter 5, he tells us that faith triumphs in our life, that we were once dead in Adam, and now we are made alive in Christ if we believe in what Christ has done. Again, this is a 10,000-foot view of these chapters. My encouragement and my hope is that you would go back home, use this little word bank, and that you would dive into Romans, and that it would stir something up inside of you, that you would begin to see it afresh and anew. And so... For the next 10 weeks, will you join us in this? And so to give you a key as to what Romans is ultimately pointing to, uh, my big idea, the sermon in a sentence, comes right out of Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This passage sets us up for where we are going for the next 10 weeks. See, the gospel is the power of God for our salvation if we believe. Meaning that the gospel is the power of God to help change the way we think and live. This is the key. If we miss this, we miss the whole thing. You got to understand that it is by the power of the gospel that I am made unashamed. And so join me in Romans 5, 20, verse 6 through 23. I'm going to read it, so I'm going to help you catch up with your yearly Bible plan reading, okay? Cool. That worked better than the first one. (laughs) This is what it says. The law came along to multiply the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus our Lord. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into the death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Mm. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Praise God. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, brothers and sisters, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? Either of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God. Thank God. That although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the patterns of the teachings of which you were handed over. And having been, made, having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Now I am using human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourself as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free with the regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become, have become an enslaved to God, you, are, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm going to go fast here, so please hold on to your seats. The first thing I want us to understand is simple. We have a sin problem. You and I have a sin problem. Paul divides humanity into two communities, one characterized by those who are still living in sin and guilt, and the other by those who are living in grace and faith. The apostle now looks at those communities with a fresh way through their representative. He's saying these both communities have a representative. Those that are living in sin and guilt is represented by Adam, the first Adam. And then those living in grace and faith is represented by Christ Jesus. And just as, as important that, that, that we understand that, 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 that Adam is, is kind of the, the reason all of us are here, and he, he, Paul says, I understand how we have gotten to this point. First, sin entered the world through one man, meaning Adam disobeyed and sin entered the world. And because of that, death then entered through sin. And then finally, all of that we have inherited. 
And humanity has a dire threat, which is that we all have a sin problem. And to understand, we must understand that Paul gets the great threat. He gets it. He understands it. Paul understands that there are also similarities between Christ and Adam. That because of, of, of what these one man did, it affected an enormous group of people. But he also understands that that's where the similarity ends because Christ Jesus is not Adam. Praise God. Because he stood and obeyed and he said, God, I'm going to do what you have called me to do. I'm going to die on the cross. And because of that, all people can be saved if they place their faith in me. We can no longer have to be bound to sin, but rather we can begin to live afresh, a new life in Jesus Christ. Meaning that humanity's, yes, been cursed by sin, and, and, and yes, we have a, a representative who disobeyed God, but we also have a representative that says, I'm going to obey God, trust me, and I'll move you from sin into eternal life. I'll move you from what you used to do into this life that is going to make full sense of what humanity really should be doing. It's living freed in me. And this is important for us to understand that the first thing is that, yes, we have a sin problem, but the answer to that sin problem is the gospel, the good news that Jesus is not dead. You see, I, I, I love Easter, but I know that sometimes Easter can be so heavy because Monday comes and then we forget about Easter. We don't live into what Christ has done. We don't live into the power of the gospel, which makes me unashamed. And so we go on with our routine life and we say, you know what? I used to do this and I used to do that, but you know what? That's okay. And my hope is that you would understand that the gospel is the power to make you unashamed of who Jesus is. My second point is this, that Paul kind of wants us to understand that we need to go through a new exodus ourselves of both mind and heart. We need to understand that we are no longer under the reign of sin. If our faith is in Christ Jesus, that no longer is who we used to be. That is who we used to be, excuse me. But we are no longer that anymore. And I'm going to go through this quick because I'm running out of time. In Romans 6, Paul tells us eight truths that we need to understand. You can throw those up there. It says that we died to sin when Jesus died once and for all. Amen? That we have been baptized with Christ Jesus, signifying that we have, have, have ultimately laid our life down and he now reigns in us and not sin. That we share in his resurrection. So if I lay and trust God, my life has been laid down, but he's also going to lift me back up. And number five is the beautiful, beautiful statement that both the death and the resurrection of Jesus were decisive events, meaning that because of what Christ has done, I am no longer the way I used to be, and I am a free new creation in Jesus Christ. <laughs> number six, we must now realize that we are what Christ is, dead to sin but alive in God. Number seven, because of all of this, we are now called to offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. And number eight, sin is no longer your master. Tell, tell your neighbors, sin is no longer my master. Some of you need to believe that. Paul wraps this up by saying, hey, look, this is all beautiful, but this is the Christian experience now. The second half of, of chapter six, he says, I used to be, you can go to the next slide, I used to be a slave to sin. 
But now I have come to obey with my heart, meaning I trust genuinely with my heart, but I also live into it. Number three, sin is no longer our Lord. And now I'm a slave to righteousness. I serve God willingly and joyfully. All of this is because of God's gracious gift to us. You see, all of this was so that we can understand that we are called to have a new exodus of both the mind and the heart. Exodus just means exit. Some of us need to leave and, and, and exit the past. Some of us need to ask the question, okay, if, if the gospel is good news, if the gospel is power to set me free, what do, I need be, what do I need to be freed from? Some of you are sitting there still in bondage to something you did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And God's saying, I've died on the cross so that you can be free. Why are you still going back to that? I've died so that you can have resurrection life. Believe in me, for it is the power to set you free. Our churches, our churches have diminished because some of us aren't living into the power of the gospel. Some of us are living ashamed of what we used to be and not living unashamed of who we are in Christ Jesus. I want to end with kind of telling you about this beautiful letter that Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to kind of summarize it. Paul ultimately says, hey, you used to be dead in your trespasses, but you are no longer that. You used to walk a certain way, but that is not the way you walk anymore. You used to be disobedient. You used to obey your flesh and the desires of it. You used to lean into the inclinations of your, of your, of your sinful thoughts. But my great love has set you free. My great love for you has made you alive in Christ Jesus. My great love for you has come down from my throne and has died so that you can be free. And all of that was so that you can be made into, into the workmanship so that you can go into the world and be light, so that you can go into the world and be salt, so that you can go into the world and others can see the light that is in you, which is Christ Jesus, so that they can be set free from the bondage of their sin. And just like the Exodus, like, like, like the, the, the story of Moses where he leads people out, many of us have that opportunity here today to exit our old lives, to exit the past, and walk into newness of life. My challenge to you today is that you would walk into your Monday deserts unashamed and with power. That you would walk into tomorrow unashamed with power. Just like the Israelites who had to relearn how to live and, and have a new mind and a new heart, we have that same opportunity here today. See, the gospel is our exit sign from our past life into our new life, meaning that I am no longer living in shame of my sin, but I am living in unashamed life of who and what Jesus has done for me. Tomorrow, we will all have to face the desert, but not the same way, because tomorrow I will walk in with a new mind, believing that I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Understanding that is where we are going for the next 10 weeks to learn how to live out the gospel. And so I want to end by leaving you with this thought. Tomorrow, 
when the desert comes, because it will, many of you know it, it's called Monday, when it comes, how will you walk into your desert? The way you used to? Or will you walk in newness of life with power, believing, being unashamed that you and I, you and I have been set free? We celebrated about it last week, but imagine a people that would walk in it every single day of their lives, how different the world would look. How are you going to walk into your Monday deserts? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book that is so rich and so heavy and so meaty. We need it. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to the reality that we are called to live unashamed lives for the gospel, that we are called to live unashamed because we have been set free from the bondage of sin, that it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Lord, help us to walk into our deserts tomorrow with a new mindset, with a new heart, understanding that I have been set free and that I am made new in Christ. And just like the Israelites who, who were baptized as they walked through the Red Sea, help us to understand that we need a new baptism of the mind and of the heart so that we can be your people here and now. Father, forgive us if we have forgotten what that means. Lord, I know that last week was Easter, but some of us have forgotten it already. Remind us of the power of the gospel. Remind us that it sets us free from the bondage of sin. Remind us that we need it every day. Because there are way too many people in the darkness that need to come to light, that need to see your love displayed in our lives. So I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.